Yes, the Monty Pythons would say, and now for something completely different, I'm a philosopher interested primarily in perception, and what I want to talk about today is what sorts of lessons, if any, uh, we should uh, take uh, for a general account of perceptual experience from the fact that there are particular illusions that have to do with time, with the way things are being perceived as unfolding in time. And to give you some context um, for what I'm talking about, um, I should do a little bit of philosophy of perception 101, as it were, and introduce three different, radically different general views about the nature of perceptual experience. Um, and typically, discussions within the philosophy of perceptions are, are framed in terms of contrasts between um, those different theories. The first one isn't so much a theory, it's rather, I'm assuming, the general view of perception that we have when we're not in a philosophical, reflective frame of mind. That's sometimes referred to as naive realism. So when we're not in a reflective frame of mind, when we're not being philosophers, we take perceptual experience to involve some kind of direct psychological relation, sometimes called awareness or acquaintance, to the mind-dependent reality that's presented to us in experience. There's a very famous, very notorious argument um, that attacks this sort of realism that's sometimes called the argument from illusion. And going through that argument will um, give us some insight into the other two um, main approaches to um, perceptual experience. So the traditional argument from illusion starts with the idea that when one is having a visual illusion, and concentrating on vision in um, what follows more or less exclusively, one's experience is as of something's having a quality, call it F, which the real object one is actually looking at doesn't actually have. But then the argument goes on. Well, when one's experience is as of something having a quality <coughs> F, there must be something one is aware of that does have the quality F. But then, of course, we know that the real object we're looking at doesn't have the quality F. So it must be that, one is, that what one is actually aware of in illusion is, in fact, something people typically refer to at that point as a sense datum, a purely mental object that has the quality F or some sort of quality corresponding to F. And then the argument concludes that since there's no way of distinguishing the phenomenology of perception, what it's like to have perceptual experiences um, from what it's like to have perceptual illusions, we must suppose that in non-illusory perception, we're also just aware of sense data. We're not really directly aware of mind-independent things out there in the world. What we are aware of, truly speaking, in perceptual experience are some figments of our own minds, some mental entities. So that's the, the second type of theory that you get here, which is sometimes called the sense data theory. Now there's a third theory that picks up on this argument and says that there's a crucial problematic step in the argument, and that step occurs at two. 
is consider this idea that when one's experience is as of something having a quality f, there must be something one's aware of that does have the quality f. Well, there's a type of mental state, um, it might be argued, where we can also have be wrong about how things are actually in the world without it being the case that um, there has to be something we are right about in a relevant way. There's no reason to think that too is true if experience is representational. Think about another representational state here. Think about the state of belief. When you believe something false, if you believe of some object, oh, that it is F, there's no reason, we have no inclination to think that there must then be some other object, some weird thing that is really F that you have this belief about. Belief, because it's a representational state, doesn't need to have an object that it's, it's, it's about, that it, um, a relation to which it um, um, is involved in having the belief. Belief can just be true or false. And that's what's sometimes called the representational nature of belief. Now, the idea is if we think of perceptual experience along, along very similar lines to belief, if we think of it as a representational state, then there's no reason to accept the second step in the argument and in the argument from illusion. So there's no need to postulate anything like sense data. So that was a quick whistle-stop <coughs> tour of three theories. Naive realism, the sense datum theory, and representationalism, where the sense datum theory agrees with naive realism that there is something like a psychological relation of awareness to some items involved in having perceptual experiences. But it disagrees with the naive realist in thinking that those items are not the mind-independent things out there that we seem to perceive, but they are sensata, they're mental items. The representational view disagrees with both naive realism and the sense datum theory in saying that perception isn't a matter of standing in a relation of awareness to some item, that some item is somehow given to you in perception, but rather it's a matter of representing things. It's a matter of representation where that is akin to belief. Just to bring out the significance, um, especially of, the, um, of this latter view, um, what's important here is, in the broader scheme, that both sense datum theorists and representationalists raise questions about the kind of knowledge that we can possess about our environment through um, perceptual experience. Um, obviously, one problem with the sense data theory is that it seems to involve something like a veil of illusion in between us and the world um, around us. We're not really in contact with the world in experience in the way we naively think that, that we are. And that may raise various sorts of sceptical worries. But sceptical worries may also be in the background here with representationalism. Normally we think that perception can somehow ground beliefs in a special sort of way. But if perception is only another type of representational state very much like belief, then it's not at all clear what the relationship, what that grounding relationship is meant to come to. It's just 
moving from one type of representation um, to another. But it's not clear to what extent perception has particular powers to um, reliably generate true beliefs and so on and so forth on that sort of picture, for instance. Okay, that's really just by way of a whistle-stop tour because what I'm really interested in is how these sorts of contrasts, or something quite similar to these sorts of contrasts, plays itself out in the context of temporal experience. And this is where I have to introduce yet one, one further type of um, theory. Um, you can think of our naive view of temporal experience, if you again think about the ordinary way in which we non-reflectively think about um, perceptual experience as combining what I earlier called naive realism, the idea that we stand in some sort of relation of awareness or acquaintance to things out there in the world, with what's sometimes called extensionism. And very briefly speaking, extensionism is the idea that episodes of experience themselves extend through a period of clock time. Experiences are not, as it were, just snapshots, but the experience itself unfolds over time. And in virtue of that, we can experience things unfolding on time. Now, it's important here to realise that the claim is not just that episodes of experience extend through a period of clock time. There might be something to do with the nature of experience in general. Um, that means that you can't have instantaneous experiences. The claim more specifically here is that we can explain how temporal experience is possible, how it's possible for us to see, see things changing or moving, for instance, by appealing to the idea that episodes of such experience do themselves extend through periods of clock time. And even more specifically, I think that the least some, somebody who is an extensionist is committed to here is that there's some form of mapping between the temporal structure of episodes of experience themselves, themselves and the temporal structure that experienced episodes are experienced to have. So just to give you an example, if you experience succession, if you have a perceptual experience of one thing giving away um, to another, the idea is that we perceive A being followed by B because we perceive A and B in turn. In, in that way, the structure of our experience maps onto the structure of that which is experienced. You might think of other sorts of mapping here. Maybe we perceive the duration of a process to be um, of a certain kind because our experience of that duration has a certain duration itself, and so on. So here we have now one particular way of fleshing out the naive, um, re naive realist uh, view of experience that also brings in the idea that we can also experience things unfolding over time a certain way. And that, that, that is because episodes of experience um, unfold over clock time. Just to give the plot away, um, this is the kind of view I want to somehow make room for. But along the way, you'll see that there's a certain amount of um, um, challenges to, um, to address. And the main challenge here, or the main challenge that I want to address today, comes from the phenomenon of apparent motion. Um, yeah, I've 
giving you kind of a, 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 a visual picture of um, an apparent motion scenario. Um, apparent motion has been studied for the last 100 years very extensively in, in psychophysics, and actually even longer than that. But the standard um, experiment, experimental paradigm is something like this. You're asked to look at a computer screen, and then nothing happens for a while on that computer sp uh, screen. Um, but then during a particular interval, called T1 to T3, all that happens, all that actually happens on the computer screen is that at T1, you get a stimulus, typically referred to as a flash, at one location, A. And then at a later time, T2, you get another stimulus, another flash, at um, location C. If your parameters are right, <coughs> if the temporal and spatial distance between those two stimuli are within a certain range, what si subjects typically report is an illusory impression of a movement between A and C. And we're all familiar with those sorts of things. If you go down the motorway, for instance, very often you have these cones with lights on top and they, um, they flash up in a sequence. And it may, there's some sort of impression of movement that that generates, not just a static uh, sequence of, um, of flashes, as it were. So that's apparent motion that I wanted to, um, as I want to talk about it um, today. Straight off, you may think, well, here's a real problem for the extensionist view um, that I've outlined before. And a philosopher called Rick Grosch has made that concrete by saying, well, presumably the proponent of such an extensionist view will maintain that the temporally extended perceptual act, the temporally extended experience, will not at T2, at a time intermediate between the two flashes, be magically predict that there will be a flash at location C. That would be very odd, wouldn't it? So the act, up until T2 at least, will represent the environment as having a flash at a, 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 a T1 and nothing at T2. But then the question is, what happens at T3 when the second flash occurs at C? There's no comfortable answer here. Well, to make it slightly more um, formalized, we can think of Grosch's argument here as proceeding as follows. Apparent motion phenomena necessarily seem to involve conflicts in experience over time. On the naive view of temporal experience, it looks like those come out as conflicts within experience itself. So on the naive view of temporal experience, what you have is a temporally extended episode of experiencing, which takes in that flash and that fl flash in turn. And if you experience, if you can experience the succession and apparent movement between those two flashes within this interval, it looks like you also have to say that within this interval, at the same time, you only perceive a static flash. So you, you get a contradiction. You get, get one experience as of a moving stimulus, which at the same time is supposed to have a part 
in which the same stimulus is experienced as being stationary. And that doesn't seem to be possible. What's Grasch's recipe? Well, here we see something very similar to the move that we saw earlier on that the representationalist makes against the general argument from illusion. His recipe is give up both naive realism and extensionalism and adopt a representationalist account of temporal experience. He develops that in quite a lot of detail, but the bare bones are quite easy to sketch. The idea that he has is that what your perceptual system does is at regular intervals, it creates a representation of your environment based on the input it has received. Crucially, though, that representation that's generated at regular <coughs> intervals is not just a representation of what's the case at that particular time it's generated, but a representation that covers an interval of time, a short period of time, both into the past and into the future. It's an estimate of what's most likely to be going on in your environment at that time. What you get in apparent motion is a situation in which a representation generated at one time conflicts with and supersedes one created earlier. So at this point, your perceptual system generates a representation just as of a static flash, but then time goes on, and at this point, your visual system has not just the input of this flash, but also the input of that flash, and at that point it generates a conflicting, a different representation, which wipes out the earlier one, where only the static flash was represented, um, and now what you're representing is some kind of movement going on. So that's Grush's representationalist solution to um, apparent motion phenomena. Does that mean that the extension list doesn't have a leg to stand on when it comes to apparent motion phenomena? Well, Grush's argument starts with the following assumption, that apparent motion phenomena necessarily involve conflicts in experience over time. Now, do we actually need to accept that assumption? Because if we can avoid that assumption, extensionism still seems to be in the game. And here's a man who thinks that he can avoid that assumption. Barry Dayton, he's an extensionist. And he says, well, <clears throat> the initial stationary flash is registered at a pre-conscious level by your visual system. It never actually reaches consciousness. As soon as the second flash registers, our visual system those systems reach the conclusion that the likely source is a moving light, and this is what we experience. It's thus only to be expected that subjects deliver the reports they do. Until this control of events can be ruled out, the extensionist has little to fear from this sort of case. So the idea here is that our actual conscious experience is the output of a perceptual mechanism that delivers its verdict only after a certain delay. By the time the flash at A first registers in consciousness, the perceptual system has also already received the information about the flash at C. And as a result, the flash at A, from the time it first registers in conscious experience, is in fact experienced as the beginning 
of a movement. There's never any conflict within experience here because of that delay. Well, if you followed my initial introduction into the three general views of, um, of experience, you can see that the move being made here is in part the move towards, or being implied here, the move towards a sense-datum theory of experience. Dayton manages to rescue extensionism, but at the price of committing himself to a version of the sense-datum theory. Because what we experience is not things like flashes on a computer screen, but things that have been generated by our perceptual system for us to experience. What we experience is what's sometimes called an inner light show created by our visual system. So, recap of what's been going on so far. I've argued that the naive view of temporal experience is that it combines naive realism with extensionalism, the view that we're directly aware of things as they are in the world around us, plus the idea that episodes of experience themselves extend through a period of clock time, and that's why we can perceive such things as movement and succession. Then we've seen Grush's model, which is a form of representationalism, denying the naive realist view of experience as awareness or acquaintance, but also denying existentialism. And we've seen Dayton's view, which is extensionism, but combined with a sense-datum theory of experience. We're still not there as far as the naive realism goes. We're still, we still haven't recovered the idea that we're directly in touch with the world in, in some special way in perceptual experience. Okay, what I want to do for the rest of my talk is try and convince you that there is a way of recovering naive realism within the context of apparent motion phenomena. And to do that, I think it's helpful to go back 99 years to one of the key works in the psychology of apparent motion, namely Wertheimer's experimental studies on the seeing of motion. Maybe I should introduce that briefly by pointing out some sort of termino terminological issue here, which is if you've at all come across the phenomenon of apparent motion before, it's likely that you've also come across the, the term phi phenomenon. Um, and phi phenomenon has either um, become, come to be used as a term to designate one very specific form of apparent motion, or it's come to be used in order to describe the class of apparent motion phenomena in general. And in each case, psychologists using the term phi phenomenon have thought that Wertheimer himself coined the usage of that term in that way. This is actually the first time phi makes an appearance in Wertheimer's text. And there he says this. The facts are these. Two objects were successively given a stimuli. These were perceived. First A was seen, then B. Between them, a motion from A to B was seen without the corresponding motion or the spatial, spatially and temporally continuous position between A and B actually being exposed as stimuli. 
And he goes on, a psychic state of affairs can be called without prejudice A phi B. Phi designates something that exists outside the perceptions of A and B. I think what Wertheim is doing here is not using phi in order to um, single out one particular type of apparent motion phenomenon. <coughs> it's not even clear whether he uses phi here in order to just designate apparent motion as against real motion. He uses phi as a placeholder. He wants to know how we should further characterize exactly what's going on here. And he does that by raising two hypotheses about phi. The first one is, phi is something which uniformly concerns A and B, something which is built on them, which both embraces, embraces and unites them. And the second one is that the phenomenal content of phi is given by subjective supplementation of the between positions, which are not objectively manifest as spatially and temporally continuous. Those are two uh, hypotheses Wertheimer raises. And significantly, Wertheimer thinks that his results show that neither of these hypotheses is correct. On the first one, he finds that he can manipulate his stimuli in such a way that you can generate a, a wide variety of different types of apparent motion experience. And sometimes what you get is an impression of movement only associated with one of the two stimuli, but not the other. But I think more significantly, Wertheimer also thinks that the second hypothesis is wrong. That was the hypothesis that the phenomenal, the phenomenal content of phi is given by subjective supplementation of the between positions which are not objectively manifest as spatially and temporally continuous. And that's contradicted by specific apparent motion phenomena, which Wertheimer called experiences of pure motion. But in pure motion, there is clearly an impression of movement, but it's also visually apparent that nothing more than two stationary stimuli are actually being perceived. Here's Wertheimer himself on pure motion, where he related to um, this hypothesis that he'd raised. What is psychically given in the field of motion? The thesis previously quoted said that the intermediate <coughs> positions of the object are subjectively supplied. One could also quote the a priori argument that motion is unthinkable unless an object, a thing, a seen thing moves. But it appears that the essence of the passage across has nothing to do with subjective intermediate positions. There are cases where phi, the motion across, is clearly given without a line being present in the field of motion in any way. The initial and final positions were present, and between them the motion, but in the field of motion no optical supplementation no seeing or imagining of intermediate positions of the stimulus. And just to give you a bit more of a flavour of what people sometimes say in those sorts of cases, here's one of Wertheimer's subjects. The exact situation is this, the passage across, the compelling motion from A to B, is there clear and dis distinct, strong and entirely continuous, but nothing of white passes across and no stripe passes across. Here is what I find even, I think, 
an even nicer description here um, by somebody called Hickson, who had basically the same, generated the same results. It must not be assumed that full movement always meant that a line was apprehended to move as a line across the field. The observers instead reported at times that the experience meant that one line moved from one position to the other, but that the actual movement of one line across the field intermediate to the other two perceived positions was not seen. I think once we've realised that apparent motion doesn't involve what Wertheimer called subjective supplementation, there is a way of opening up a path again for a direct realist view. Certainly both Grush's and Dayton's accounts seem to rest on the assumption that apparent motion involves some form of subjective supplementation. In one case, what's supplemented by a visual system is a representation, but a representation that's non-veridical, that's false of how things are actually out there in the world. That would be Grosch's idea. In Dayton's case, what supplemented our sense data, and most likely what he means sense data corresponding to intermediate positions um, on the journey of the stimulus from, from A to C. But if Wertheimer is right, the most, most straightforward way in which, which one might link apparent motion with the idea of sub subjective supplementation is just contradicted by the empirical results. So how might this open up a way out for a naive realist view? In the last five minutes or ten minutes or so, I want to borrow a strategy that's been used in the context of discussions of illusions in general to make the existence of illusions compatible with, um, with naive realism, with a naive realist view according to which in perception we're actually directly aware of or presented with things out there in our environment, that perception doesn't involve misrepresentation or um, only the awareness of sense data. And the strategy has been to look more closely at the semantics of statements in which we say that something looks a certain way. And here's one, one particular quote from a paper of Mike Martin's where he expresses the strategy as follows, and then we need to unpack that a little bit more. He says, on the whole, we convey information to each other both about the looks of objects and about sensory episodes in which things look some way or other to us through the use of implicit comparative claims that the object or the sensory state is relevantly similar to some other paradigm case. He calls this a minimalist approach. Um, and on such a minimalist approach, he says, it would be mistaken to look to our semantic competence, to the way in which we talk about something looking a certain way, to argue in favour of one substantive theory of sense experience over another, meaning to argue for um, one of these three views of perceptual experience. Now, how are we meant to unpack this here? Here, in a nutshell, is how you think of what's being proposed here in the context of apparent motion. There's first 
the idea, so the idea is that the object or the sensory state is relevantly similar to some other paradigm case. Well, what could be a paradigm case of movement that what we see in apparent motion is similar to? Well, arguably, there are some characteristic, characteristic visible features of movements or of situations in which something actually moves that may not be present or present to the same degree in cases, in other cases where something moves. So there are characteristic visual features of movement that the second hand of a clock has, for instance, that the hour hand doesn't have, even though the hour hand is moving too. There's some movements that are too fast, too slow, don't cover enough um, distance and so on and so forth, that we don't actually visibly recognize them as paradigm cases of movement. But there are other cases where the displacement is just right, where this is, where those are good paradigm visual cases of movement. Well, once we introduce the idea of paradigm cases of movement in this sense, we might also make sense of the idea that something that isn't a case of movement at all may share certain features with such paradigm cases of movement. So cases in which there's no actual movement occurring might be visually similar in certain respects to paradigm cases of movement, indeed more so than to paradigm cases of non-movement. And that's, that's the idea that you could describe apparent motion phenomena as situations in which something looks like, a display looks like there's something moving, but what you're actually impress, uh, uh, expressing is that the display shares certain visual features with a paradigm case in which something is moving. That doesn't necessarily commit us to saying that there's any sort of supplementation going on that what you're perceiving is in any way um, based on a misrepresentation or based on some supplementation of sense data. Just to make clear exactly where the contrast here is meant to lie with the idea of subjective supplementation, it's of course true that which particular cases of movement do constitute paradigm cases of visible movement, that's dependent in certain ways on our particular contingencies about our psychology, our sensory and psychological makeup. It's only particular movements that we are particularly equipped to make out by vision. What we find similar to what too, to a certain extent, depends on our psychological makeup. But neither of these two ways in which our psychology might be implicated in apparent motion or in apparent motion looking like a case of movement needs to imply that more is being experienced than just the two stimuli. It's just that those two stimuli are experienced to be in some way relatively, relevantly similar um, to a case of movement. So we need to distinguish here between what you may call psychological relativity, 
what counts as a paradigm case of visible movement for us, what strikes us as similar to what. We need to distinguish between psychological relativity in that sense and psychological construction in the sense of a subjective <coughs> supplementation. It's only if there is psychological construction involved, then we are forced into accepting either a sense datum theory or a representationalist theory. So to sum up, this is what my argument has been in a nutshell. In apparent motion, we should accept that the display looks like a display in which something is moving. And of course, if that similarity was the product of what Wertheimer calls subjective supplementation, then naive realism would be ruled out. It would not be true that we actually perceive the world as it is. But then I've raised the empirical question as to whether, or Wertheimer raised the empirical question as to whether the psychology of apparent motion provides empirical evidence for subjective supplementation. And here the answer was no. Then the only other question is, can we give an account of the similarity without the idea of subjective supplementation as part of our theory of what that similarity comes to? And there my argument has been, yes, we can think of look statements simply as expressing a co comparison with a paradigm case of um, something else. And that's it for me. Thanks very much.